Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined this week by Chris Steyerwalt, and we are talking to Mo Alethi. He is the founding executive director of Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service, the first institute of its kind in the nation's capital, they boast. Before that, he worked at the top levels of communications for the Democratic Party, communications director and chief spokesman for the Democratic National Committee, which is where I met Mo when we would meet up at the food trucks that are halfway in between the RNC and the DNC. And Mo and I forged a friendship based largely on French fries, I would say. Queso, French fries. fries. I miss yeah. those fries. Yeah, those were the good days. The good days of, of food trucks and the good days of bipartisan food truck conversation. Let's dive in. Mo, we're thrilled to have you here. It's I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So this week, Georgetown released its politics battleground poll. Tell us some top lines. What did you find most interesting? Yeah, so we, yeah, the battleground poll is has a long story history. It's been around for this month. It's celebrating its 30th anniversary. And what makes it unique is it's conducted by a Republican pollster, Ed Goaz, and Celinda Lake, a Democratic pollster. Um, and they pull together and then write their separate analyses. We've been the ho- home of it for the past couple of years. And when, when it moved into our shop, we added a new component um, co- that we call the civility poll. We like to sort of wanted to get a sense as to how bad is the polarization in America? How bad do voters think it is? Who do they blame? Do they really want it? Um, civility, right? And so we've been tracking that for the past couple of years. And this most recent poll was really interesting. Um, what we found was that for the first time in our polling, the issue of division has sort of surged into the lead as the most important issue on the minds of voters, where a full third of voters, it's a plurality, a full third of voters rank it as either their top or their second biggest concern. And what's interesting to me is that cuts across all lines, Democrats and Republicans, men and women, uh, black and white, um, there generally people were are frustrated by the political division to the point where it has moved ahead in the in sort of the issues ranking uh, over the past year ahead of the economy, ahead of COVID, ahead of government spending, and, and a whole host of other issues. So that was number one. Number two, how much do people really truly want to get past the division? We always ask this question. And they always say they absolutely want to get past the division, right? 90% of people say, sure, I would like there to be more civility and less division in politics. As long as everyone agrees with me. <laughs> well, and that's what's interesting. We have asked the question a number of different ways. One of my favorite ways that we've asked the question in the past was agree or disagree with the following statements. Number one, common ground and compromise are noble goals I want my leaders to aspire to. 87% of people say they agree with that. Agree or disagree with this. I am tired of leaders who compromise on my values. I want them to stand up and fight the other side. 84% say they agree with that. It's as if people <laughs> have been saying, I totally want common ground. Just see where I'm standing Mine, and come over right. here and then we'll be on common ground. That's right. People need to compromise. They need to compromise, by which I mean those idiots need to give up their ideas and come agree with me. And it's and it's complicated. That's complicated for a political leader. That's a complicated line for a political leader to walk, right? What's the incentive structure? So in this most recent poll, we tried to figure out what the incentive structure was. Um, and we asked the question a little bit differently. Um, if you have a choice between a politician who is willing to compromise and find com- work across the aisle in order to get results, even if that means compromising on my values sometimes, versus a politician who never compromises on my values, fights a good fight all the time, even if that means we don't always get results. Which do you prefer? And overwhelmingly, people chose the former. Overwhelmingly, people were saying, results are more important to me than ideological purity. Now, 
ask them, start, start asking them about specific issues and it gets more complicated. We did some focus groups on this recently and people are, people said the same thing in the focus groups, but then we started asking them, okay, are there any issues that are, you know, hard and fast, no compromise. And you always get some, so none of this is clean, but we are seeing that results, people's def- however people define it, results are the most important thing for them right now. And that what are they incredibly frustrated with is the division in Washington that is preventing results um, from taking place. We, there's lots of other interesting nuggets in there. Beyond that, we are incredibly polarized. Can't find a, a lot to agree on. Um, and um, people generally blame one party for the division more than the other. Um, uh, Democrats in Congress uh, have an edge when asked, who do you think is better suited to get past the division? Republicans can maintain an edge on issues like the economy, smaller though than you'd expect. But Democrats are seen as having an edge on, on bringing the country together. Congressional Democrats have a much higher approval rating than congressional Republicans, including amongst Republicans themselves. The re- Republicans do not uh, view their party leadership in Washington very highly right now. Um, and lots of other interesting nuggets. But the fact that divisions has surged into sort of the top spot over the past several months um, was very noteworthy, we thought. So, Mo, I went on a issue polling rant in our last podcast where I explained that issue polling by and large is pretty meaningless to me because it's never verifiable. With elections, you're asking a tangible question, who are you going to vote for? Then on election day, we find out who you voted for and we can judge the poll. On issue polling, you always have to ask this sort of theoretical feelings question and people contain multitudes. It matters incredibly how you phrase the question. It matters what hour of the day you ask the question. And it matters uh, in the sense that like people only get to vote on those things for a person because we live in a republic. So also they're not really ever able to actionify that polling question. Um, But I had a caveat, which is, when you're asking the same question over time, you can look at the delta and say that there is something happening if there's been a change. Uh, so I want, with that in mind, for you to persuade me that this poll, um, that I should I should put stock in this poll. Yeah, I, I'm, I think I generally actually agree with you. Um, I think with some caveats as well. Um, what I like about the polling that we do and the way that Ed and Celinda do it is it is all about tracking over time. It's about identifying trends. And even when I worked in in the partisan trenches, I always ignored the, the least important question to me on a poll is the horse race question, right? The least important question is the one to me was whatever the, the question everybody was looking at uh, in the public. I, I cared about the trends. And I think the fact that you can see the trends. One of the things, for example, that I'm that that is really interesting to me is um, we ask in this poll, for example, you know, trying to get a sense as to how bad people think division is, to rank on a scale of zero to one hundred, the level of division. Zero being no division, one hundred being edge of civil war. And over the past two years, we've watched that number steadily increase, um, to the point where. The last time we were in the field before this most recent poll was the first week of January, right? Right right before the insurrection. And we saw that number reach an all-time high, right? In in the mid to high 70s was the mean response that people thought we were three-quarters of the way to the Civil War. Like, that's an important trend line to watch. Um, And so I I agree with you. Following the trends can tell you a, a lot about the mood of the country and shifting attitudes in the country, much more so than, than sort of one question, one-off question about a particular issue. <clears throat> but it, it has been helpful, right? You've seen over the, you saw, for example, in the run-up to the 2018 uh, midterms, Democrats kept looking at polling that was showing the elevated importance of healthcare as an, itch, as an issue. Um, and so all the congressional Democrats out there running were running on healthcare, and they had a good year. So you, they can be helpful in shaping the narrative for candidates and campaigns, and they can be helpful for the rest of us um, 
uh, in analyzing the mood of the country. But I do think you're right that doing it, that, that looking at it through the prism of, of shifts and trend lines is really the only or one of the most important functions of polls like these. All right, let's get Steyerwald in here because, I mean, Steyerwald, this was your job. Uh, what was my job? Talking to Mo? Of course. <laughs> this is I'm I, I'm 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 well versed, well experienced. Um well, I guess, I mean, as you know, this is what I wrote about for my column this week, uh, and you very generously cited it. Um, you were my inspiration, as you always are, friend. Issue polling is valuable and important. Uh, and it, for both people who are trying to win elections and for people who want to know what their countrymen and countrywomen are feeling and thinking. Uh, if you care about the country, uh Issue polling of the kind that Pew does uh, and the Knight Foundation does, uh, people that take long, longitudinal surveys, that the University of Michigan and that they do at Harvard, uh, and indeed polls like the one that Ed and Celinda do, which is, of course, the poll model we used at Fox. It's the poll model from the Wall Street Journal, which is the right thing. You get an R and a D and you have them test each other's assumptions and you get better questions and better stuff. <clears throat> so if you do it right, you can really find out a lot. But doing it wrong is cheap and easy, right? So the uh, the Mo, what I wrote about was how people kept saying, you know, 69% approve HR1, 69% approval for House Resolution 1, the For the People Act is wildly supportive, including more than half of Republicans. I was like, that's not true. That's definitely not true. And then you go lift the hood on um, uh, Data for Progress's poll, and the question is like, if there was a poll that gave a fluffy bunny and a chicky and marshmallow cream pies uh, to everybody uh, for all for all time to make everyone happy and good, it literally says like control, dark money, and gerrymand, like this amazing bill of things. And they even use uh, uh, trigger words for Republicans, election, safety, security. So they put everything in there. And the only thing that they say the people object to it is a, a federalistic argument that it's a state's right issue. And that's like two words. Well, if you put that out in an online poll, boo, all online poll, uh, if you put that out in an all online poll and you phrase the question that way for what do you, I mean, how many people in America really know what the, that, that act is? Let's be generous and say 40% of Americans, that, and that would be high, but let's say some idea that such legislation is, as this existed, that maybe f close to half of Americans, I think that's high, but let's say that was so. If it's over 15%, I will yeah. buy you a very expensive bottle of scotch. And it would depend on how you asked it, right? It would depend on, I think there's probably more than 15% of people who have an idea that this debate is going on. Um, but for at least half of the people or more than half of the people, you're telling them what it is. And if you're telling them what it is, so I guess what Mo is doing, what this poll is doing is attitudinal polling. And that's really valuable. Um, issue polling, like do you support this piece of legislation or do you support that piece of legislation is next to impossible because there are so few issues that break through like, and you can definitely do it on immigration and you can definitely do it on national security issues and you can definitely do it on things that have broken through on everything else. I think it's a lot of flummery. No, I think that's exactly right. I think a lot of people do polling badly. And I think a lot of people analyze polling badly, which encourages more people to poll badly. Um, and I think that's part of the problem. But I, but the last point you made there, Chris, I'm, I'm totally on board with. It's the attitudinal stuff that's really important to me because that's where you can start to get a sense as to what people actually think. And sometimes it's asking, like asking less is more, right? Which party do you trust more on immigration? Right? Let's not define it. Let's not define what each side is doing. Just which part, like, and, and suddenly you get a sense as to where the country is, right? Where their perceptions are of the parties. I was surprised by, in addition to the stuff that you talked about with the numbers dropping on the Civil War stuff and the, the, the comity scale uh, for politics, I was surprised by the durability. And as you point out, the Republican advantages are small on taxes and small on job growth, but there's still advantages. And the degree to which the parties, after this insane Mr. Toad's wild ride that the country has just been on for the past, well, really since 2008, but definitely in the last five years, 
that the lanes are still there, right? You have the Republicans that are favored on economic issues and you have Democrats that are favored on social issues. Yes, but, and where where I think the polling can, can be illustrative, not predictive, but illustrative is um, the degrees, right, uh, on each of these things. So for example, Republicans have historically maintained an edge on core economic issues. They still do, but they hold a three or four point margin in what was once an issue they used to hold a 10 point margin. In. Add to that the fact that the Democratic margin on the issues they historically have, have fared well in has actually widened. Now add to the fact that the polling is when you ask people to rate the issues in terms of what is actually going to motivate them, what do they actually truly care about? It's the issues that Democrats have more of an advantage on, generally that rate higher right now. Not entirely. Number two biggest issue was government spending, and Republicans maintain an edge on that. But number three, bunched right in there, is voting rights. And Democrats have a very strong advantage on that. So you start to see how uh, you know Republicans actually could be in a tougher spot than people think heading into the midterms today, as of right now, um, because where they should have a bigger edge, as of right now, they have a smaller one, and the issues that are motivating people are the ones that favor Democrats. Um, that is what we are going to be watching in the coming weeks and the coming months um, to see if that trend line continues. Um, or if things do start to revert back to form as more and more distance um, uh, between sort of Donald Trump and voters' minds, if that distance ever, ever occurs. I think there's no doubt that if if this were the story of the electorate and the and the issue set going into fall of next year, it would the the Democrats would. So I, I guess the way I look at it is. The Democrats are more likely than not to lose the House and the Senate, not by a huge margin. And I mean that both in how many seats, but also I mean in history just says the average is 22 uh, for a president's first midterm. And dem every Democratic president uh, since uh, LBJ has lost at least one Senate seat in his first midterm. And that's that's that that's what history says. So the Republic and this is obviously what the Republicans are thinking, like, we're so close. It's right here. Just don't talk about anything and just, st you know, stand here and pick on uh, social issues. Keep your base together. And maybe we can sort of drift into the end zone. Right. We're, we're here on the three yard line. We'll just drift in. Uh, if this was the issue set uh, going into next fall and these were the public opinions, the Republicans would be in trouble. Right. This, I, I would say that the, that that the Democrats odds of keeping and the way I look at I guess the simplest way I can put it is if these right track wrong track numbers and Biden's favorability numbers don't soften up the Republicans are going to be in a tough spot and this is what our Republican analysis will tell you what our Republican pollster will tell you is that there's an opportunity here for Republicans right that Biden's doing okay but he's not great right the right track wrong track in the country is still upside down now it's significantly better when we when we tested back in last August, the right track, wrong track for the country, there was a 50-point differential. We hadn't ever seen that before. 22% said right track, 72% said wrong track. Now it's very different, right? Now it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's like 45 it was, I think, to 50 Yeah, 45, right? yeah. And who, who knew we'd say 50% wrong track was things looking up? But yes, well, absolutely. But things are looking up. People are feeling better about the direction of the country. If that trajectory stays the same, great. But a Republican pollster will say, sure, but it's still not, people aren't walking down the street whistling, you know, happy tunes. They're still feeling that, that the country's not in the right place. There's an opportunity there. But Republicans need to refocus on the things that voters are already giving, want to give them an edge on. And they're not. Instead of focusing on the things voters give them an edge on, like the economy, Republicans are focusing on things voters give Democrats an edge on, like voting rights. And that is that complaining be, about Anthony Fauci. <laughs> well, now the other thing that we're doing, and this is really fascinating, we we have been looking at sort of the the role of the media ecosystem in shifting attitudes. 
Um, and so we tested just a couple of names that we wanted to see how voters would react to them. We tested Black Lives Matter. We tested um, QAnon. And we tested Anthony Fauci. Tell him what. He, tell him what Q got. Tell him what Q got. So uh, you may actually have the numbers in front of you. It's I don't like, have them in front of you. It's like well, I, I love the, like I love your poll. Four percent, like a four percent, uh, four approval or six percent, four or six percent approval, and it goes against every dumb to our earlier discussion about polling. Every dumb poll that's like seventy-seven percent of Republicans are QAnon supportive because some you know that this is a marginal, highly marginal, narrow, very unpopular thing. Well, I mean, if you notice in the poll, a full, like, I think it was close to 40% of the public had never even heard of QAnon. Yep, exactly. But never even heard of QAnon. But here's where it gets interesting. We ask people where they get their information. And if you look at the responses on on those three names, QAnon, Black Lives Matter, and, um, uh, and Anthony Fauci, where you get your information correlates with your opinion. So Black Lives Matter has like a 56% approval rating unless you're a daily Fox viewer. If you're a daily Fox viewer, your approval rating of Black Lives Matter is, is way, way, way upside but down. But isn't that, isn't that a self-selected group, though? Uh, is, sure. Wh- what, sure. I mean, what I mean is people who are inclined to not like Black Lives Matter it's watch Fox. And I'm correct. sure it's an intensifier. Well, I, guess, I guess that's the question. It's correlative, not causal. Yeah. Right. I'm well, not saying it's causal. To a degree. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But but that's the age old. This is the chicken and egg question, right? Are they going to Fox because they don't like Black Lives Matter, or you know, are they liking Black Lives Matter less because they're watching Fox? And both are probably true. This, by the way, was the really interesting issue when I was looking at uh, some of the exit polls. Now that they're like corrected and and whatever, when you look at um, non-white men who voted for Trump. It was uh, highly correlated with having a negative opinion on uh, Black Lives Matter or thinking crime was spiking, some things like that. And it really was like chicken and egg. You saw headlines that said, um, you know, black men who don't approve of Black Lives Matter voted for Trump. It could just as easily be that black men who wanted to vote for Trump, therefore, decided to have a a negative opinion of Black Lives Matter. So definitely teaching correlation and causation to your college students seems like a top priority. (laughs) Yes. No, and I Uh, think that's exactly right. So Mo, I want to push you a little on this idea that the um, Republicans are focusing on Democratic-friendly issues and see what you think about... The Republicans are also focusing heavily you know, when you look at uh, what ads they're running, sort of the digital ads as sort of a test run, I think, for what's going to happen in the fall, a lot on defund the police still, um, really heavily investing in the idea of tying vulnerable Democrats to that phrase. And critical race theory. And the critical one. race theory, Mo, you knew where I was going. Uh, school curriculum, critical race theory stuff, the white fragility um, and I'm wondering what you see in that and whether that is a productive ground that Republicans are starting to, to test out, or in fact, you think that that still will land in an overall positive way for Democrats. So I think um, it's too soon to tell. Um, I think you saw during the midterms some mixed, or I'm sorry, during the last election, some mixed results in, uh, in how Republicans would go after Democrats. In some places, just calling Democrats socialists uh, was enough uh, to hurt them, uh, to the down ballot candidates. Um, in other places where they ran incredibly heavy rotations trying to, you know, law and order type ads saying that Democrats are, are, are going to, um, uh, burn your cities down or burn your communities down. That didn't work. Um, so, so it's a little soon to tell. I do think, um, if you are, again, if you are part of the Republican base who gets your information primarily from conservative media, Republicans are keeping you energized with stuff like critical race theory, with stuff like black, uh, like uh, defund the police. Uh, um, we tested uh, how big of a problem people um, thought political correctness was, um, and cancel culture. 
And like nobody other than diehard Republicans think cancel culture is an, is an issue, right? Independents don't think cancel culture is a real thing. Um, at least right now, <clears throat> they don't. But Republicans are very animated and, and motivated by it. So they're going to keep their base um, motivated by that. And they need to because their base, uh, there are some issues there. Nothing that's necessarily existential right now. Um, but but there are some rifts within the Republican base right now. Um, whether or not that whether or not they can get the independence to care about some of these issues, I think that's the heavier lift. But it could if they if they hammer away at it, maybe they do. Back in our day, Mo, when we were in partisan politics, let's call it the early aughts, um, you could really differentiate your audiences with different messages. In fact, it got a lot of politicians in trouble, right? They'd say one thing at a donor event and then one thing at a rally. And it was pretty hard to tag them for that. And then you saw Mitt Romney's 47% common in 2012. And I would say that was sort of the end of differentiated messages. But campaigns, it seems to me, still want to, but have not found a way to have one message for their base that they get to their base and their base alone, and one message for independence that they can get to independence and independence alone. Because what you're describing is the Republicans really are um, going to see dividends for critical race theory or defund the police with their base, but they need a totally different message on the economy, on right track, wrong track for the independents, and you've got to do both. So how do you do that as an operative right now? So I have two thoughts on this. Number one, I think the biggest problem that Republicans have right now is they are not for anything in the eyes of most voters, right? Um, Other than Donald Trump. They are for Donald Trump, but they are not for an ideology anymore, a worldview. If you ask people what it is that makes them a Republican. This is one of my favorite questions I ask whenever I bring a speaker to Georgetown campus, right? Define Democrat or define Republican, define your party. And it's astonishing how much harder it is for Republicans to answer that question today than it was five, 10 years ago. Um, So that's number one. Number two, I actually never thought, I always thought candidates that delivered different messages to different audiences were candidates that were always going to lose. That you should have one message, one message that you could, with different points of emphasis, but it still feeds back into a core narrative, a core story about who you are, what your worldview is, why you are fighting for people. Um, And then you can tailor specific issues to specific communities, but it all feeds into the bigger story arc. That's the problem right now. That's the problem right now. I think right now, um, again, Democrats are doing marginally better at telling a story about what it is they want to do and how that helps the average voter than Republicans are, other than saying we are anti-Biden and pro all these culture issues. If there is a defining core narrative of the Republican Party today, in my opinion, it is this notion of we're undergoing a cultural upheaval that is threatening our way of life. And we are the last line of defense against that. Now, that can be a powerful emotional message for the people who believe that. But for everyone else, independent voters, like what does that give them? Um, I don't think that helps them. They tried the law and order with those people and those people said, no, that's not enough for me, at least not right now. I do think it is still important to be for something. We, our politics used to be defined by a competition about what is the best path towards opportunity. With one say, one side saying, opportunity is elusive because government is getting in the way. And the other side saying opportunity is elusive because there are so many obstacles and government can help level the playing field. That was it. That was the argument. That's what we were all fighting over all the time. I I, I can't point to that right now, what what the two (laughs) sides are of that argument. I think Democrats are still trying to frame things around the opportunity message, or at least I think Joe Biden is. Right. I was going to push you on that a little. I mean, Democrats have their own fraying at the edges going on here. Yeah, but it's far less, I think, um, uh, 
<laughs> debilitating <laughs> to the party. I think it is, um, I, I think even with every party always has some internal fighting, but they're still generally in the same place. Um, that's not, I think, the case with the Republican uh, electorate. I, I, I really don't. I think they are generally unified, but not as much as, as Donald Trump thinks they are. Do you agree that, and I, I 100% associate myself with your uh, scale there, the Democrats have a little grease fire in the kitchen, the Republicans' house is a fully ablaze uh, <laughs> from from uh, from rafters to cellar. Um, the my question is, as we see, your your poll has Biden at 52 and riding with Biden. That's been in, in a, he, he's a mile wide and an inch deep. It's not very intense support. And this is what other poll. Uh, th- this is what other polls have said. Uh, but it is in a lot of ways, if you if you had the choice between having Barack Obama's approval numbers in his first year and Joe Biden's approval numbers, there'd be a pretty strong case that you could make for Joe Biden, who's been right there at 50 percent or so all along. Um, Is there a danger for Biden that as you run out of, you know, obviously they're they're talking about another uh, multi-trillion dollar spending. Some some big spending package is going to come out that's somewhere between a trillion dollars and four trillion dollars. Um, but that dissatisfaction on the Democratic base will bubble up and they'll start pushing Biden in ways that they haven't before. Like that test still hasn't come and it will come, right? Yeah, it'll come. And you're starting to see some signs of, you know, some of the uh, some congressional leaders on the left basically saying no climate, no deal, right? On infrastructure, if you don't, if you don't include climate in the infrastructure deal. But here's the thing, we keep hearing that from folks on the on the left. Um, this will maybe be the first real legislative test. But Biden's kind of pushed back every time, right? When there was demands on defund the police by what ended up being a very small minority within the party, uh, um, uh, around on that that message, at least Biden pushed back. Right, he said, "I'm not going to go there. All right, I'm going to adopt some of the core, you know, beliefs that we need to reallocate some funding, but I'm not going to defund the police." And he did not pay a political price for that. Um, and we've seen that time and time again, where Biden has been willing to push back on some of the, the the loudest demands from the left while still allowing them to feel included in the process. And that's where I think Biden's many years of, of skilled politicking um, has been very beneficial to him. That is, that is all true. But as you know, when a president is successful and having success, that's when it's hardest to take care of your base because they become more demanding. And we think about George Bush with the Harriet Myers and immigration bill. Uh, we think about uh, what the numerous occasions where the left, and this was certainly the case uh, going into 2014, didn't want to be helpful to Obama. Uh, and if you're popular and if you're successful, it's your own party that can make you a lame duck, right? And I'm not, Biden has been, he's been Teflon. He has done a tremendous job. He's cu- he's coming off of uh, a low a low baseline. <laughs> the, the baseline for competency was low, but he has done a good job. But at some point that's going to be there, right? I think if, if we revert back to sort of normal pol- rules of politics, I think that's true. I'm not sure we're ready to revert yet um, because I think all Biden has to do when the left starts coming at him is just point to Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? And point to the stuff that has been, uh, point to Maricopa County, Arizona, and what's going on there and say, this is the alternative. We can either try to, you know, not let the the perfect be the enemy of uh, of the good, right? and get as much done as we possibly can. Uh, and it may not be perfect, but if you revolt, look what we get. Totally. The, the, the walking cautionary tale. I think that is still uh, more compelling now than it normally is, right? <laughs> In a midterm election, when each side tries to, when the governing party tries to point to the other side and say, you want that? It is more compelling now um, because we just see st- such level of crazy coming out of the other side. And if Sarah will let me, I want to make sure that I ask you 
uh, about the Virginia governor's race. You are a Virginian. Uh, you are you know the Commonwealth very well. Uh, just give us your give us your thirty thousand foot. We got the Republicans surprisingly picked the least bad nominee uh, <laughs> in Glenn Youngkin, uh, but. McAuliffe delivered a tour de force in his, I was blown away by the numbers in the primary for turnout and how well he did. I bet he won the plurality of non-white voters, even when there were three black candidates running essentially against him on that. Uh, how do you see the race? Um, I think Virginia is um, a bluish shade of purple, um, is its new natural state. Um, and I think McAuliffe is, uh, you know, McAuliffe built up a lot of goodwill. He left office as one of the most popular governors, not just in the Commonwealth, in Commonwealth history, but in the country. He left office the first time um, and he's maintained a lot of that goodwill. Youngkin, again, I mean, I think the Republican Party and Republican candidates are struggling right now to figure out what the right approach is. So Youngkin just came through a very contentious Republican nominating battle. And what are his first round of ads about? critical race theory, right? Like, oh, I, I have not seen those ads. I did see a really good I mean, ad di- of his. A lot of digital ads, a lot of digital ads. Oh. He's, he's, so I just, I wonder whether or not like they're going to have a, a, a message that can tap into those Northern Virginia suburbs and exurbs where statewide elections are decided in Virginia. You know, I worked on, uh, I've worked, as you mentioned, I've worked on a number of statewide races and, when Republicans try to run cultural battles in Virginia, they lose. Um, and we saw that too. when Tim Kaine was running for governor, his opponent was hammering him with ads of talking about his personal opposition to the death penalty. Virginians love the death penalty. Um, and our response ads were talking about traffic and transportation. And right. And that's what motivated voters. McAuliffe is really good at tapping into that. The stuff that motivates sort of the kitchen table issues that motivate voters. We'll see if Young can can do that. But some of the initial stuff I've seen coming out of there just shows that he's going to kind of run the the national Republican playbook. And that worries me. Watching watching baseball last night, I saw a good ad, uh, which was Youngkin in street clothes in civilian clothes, walking down a middle stripe line on a road, cutting through a sea of faceless blue suited politicians. That's a pretty good message. But I, I, the way, what I told a Virginia Republican uh, politico the other day was, he said, do you think Youngkin has a chance? I said, sure, he's got a chance. He's got a two in five chance. And as long as Joe Biden's approval rating uh, nationally and Virginia is pretty closely indexed to what national sentiment is going to be here. Joe Biden's over 50 percent. Glenn Youngkin ain't going to win. But if Biden stumbles or the Democrats have a problem between now and November, eh, you got a shot. Well, and here's the other thing. You're running as an outsider at a time when people are actually not that dissatisfied with the status quo in Virginia. Yeah, they liked how they liked McAuliffe. They like Northam. Right. And they like uh, Biden. Um, so to say I'm not going to be that people are like, well, I'm actually kind of happy with this right now. I think so, y'all are missing the reason that Youngkin will lose. Why? Name ID. If Youngkin were running against Justin Fairfax or someone, you know, one of the other candidates who were running against McAuliffe and it was sort of a low name ID race, I think then Youngkin has that two in five, maybe even a higher shot. I think when you're running against Terry McAuliffe with, you know, not 100% name ID in the state, but high name ID in the state, um, I, I don't see Yunkin overcoming that in those marginal voters who don't have, you know, who aren't going to watch all these ads, aren't going to have strong opinions, but they know who Terry McAuliffe is. I think it's name ID coupled with high favorability. People like Terry in in the Commonwealth right now, particularly in those in those uh, suburban and exurban communities. Um, so I think you're right, right? People know him and they like him. How do you then run as an outsider against that? Mo, I also want to talk to you about the New York City mayor's Democratic primary that's happening on Tuesday um, without knowing who's going to win. And I don't even want your prediction of who's going to win. I want two things. One, uh, is this the beginning of rank choice voting spreading like wildfire through the country like I want? And two, when we know who wins, 
what should we say that means for the Democratic Party and the direction that it's going? Or is the New York mayor's Democratic primary such a small group of very specific types of Democrats that we shouldn't read anything into it, even though you and I both know all of the headlines will blare on Wednesday? Yeah. So second question first, I'd I'd look a lot more at what's going on in Virginia uh, if you want to read tea leaves than what's going on in the New York City mayor's race, right? Like looking at a primary in a um, partisan town doesn't tell you a lot about what's happening in the country. Um, Maybe it tells you a little bit about what's happening in urban communities, um, heavily democratic urban communities. But, But I have the same caution when like, Everyone wanted to write that AOC was the new face of the Democratic Party. She just took a, she won in a blue district that was shifting more in her direction already. That doesn't tell you about where the electorate as a a whole is. Although AOC has been an influence on the Democratic Party, I think you would agree. Amongst many influences on the Democratic Party, right? Joe Manchin is an influence on the Democratic Party right now. Whether they like Um, it or not. (laughs) And I'm not trying to take anything away from AOC, but my point is she is not reflective of the direction of the party as a whole. Um, she is an important voice. And I think that's how you look at at a Democratic primary in a heavily Democratic city. Um, it's just a, a data point. It is not reflective of the whole thing. Ranked choice voting. I am so interested in what happens with that moving forward. We're seeing more and more places flirt with it. This might be one of the first really big test cases, right? It like is. One of the it's the largest population to use it in the United States. I mean, Alaska and Maine, with all due respect, just, you know, it's not getting people jumping out of bed the way this is getting me jumping out of bed in part, Mo, because I have this post-operative life jealousy I want the cha- like I want to go run a ranked choice voting race because it is such a different, interesting challenge. It is very. I mean, it just changes the way you do campaigns, totally. and maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, right. I think that's probably a good thing because Lord knows when you and I got out of the business uh, was not at the heyday of political campaigning. Uh, um, maybe that's why we got out of the business when we did. But um, I, I do think it, it it adds a lot more nuance. Um, in the way that voters are more nuanced, um, and that's and that's a good thing. So I'll be curious to see what it does, and and um, I would not be surprised if you do see more and more places flirting with it at least. All right, what advice do you have right now for the Biden comms team? What aren't they doing well? Um, I actually think they're doing a relatively decent job. It's a hard job. Right. I mean, I uh, I spent my whole career in politics working in communications, never at the White House. And and I'm, I'm thankful that I never worked communications at the White House because it's, it's a tough, tough job. But I think they're, they're doing a, a fairly good job. Look, the one thing I wanted them to do uh, as a Democrat and frankly, as a citizen. Was. Um, be more present, right, get back out there. And I think one of the biggest problems one of the most important things Joe Biden needed to do was reestablish trust between the electorate and and their government and um, to demonstrate competence and to demonstrate accessibility. I think they have done that. Are they doing it in a way that makes everyone happy all the time? No, but they certainly have moved us back in that direction. I thought the Andy Slavitt, you know, um, uh, coronavirus task force briefings were great. Um, I think Jen Psaki is good at the podium. Um, I would like maybe um, to have the president himself out there a little bit more. Um, uh, Maybe not necessarily taking reporter questions, but just seeing him a little bit more, because I think Joe Biden has a unique ability to reassure voters um, in a way that most political leaders can't. Right. I just feel better when I hear him talk about something. It just makes me feel more at ease. Um, and I think a lot of people feel that way. And we're seeing it in some of our focus groups, even, even, even soft, even we did the focus groups recently with, um, uh, hesitant Trump voters from 2020. And even they were saying, you know, I'd like to see the president. I'd like to see Biden a little bit more. Cause it just, you know, I voted for Trump, but I don't dislike Biden. And whenever I hear from him, it makes me feel a little bit better. So I'd like to see the president a little bit more. 
Um, but generally, I think they're doing a good job. All right. Uh, Steyerwalt, you get the last question, and then I've got an ending topic for us. Well, uh, I guess the, the only question I have is how do you – how have your students changed? How has their perception of politics, why they want to be in and around politics – you're dealing with the cream of the crop, right? You're people from around the country and around the world, and they want to be in the best school in Washington uh, at the at doing politics there. So you've got so, – sorry, George Washington. Uh, but the – so you have the elite of the elite. What have you seen the change in them over the past? Let's say, well, you've been there how, how long now? Six years. We, we opened the doors to the Institute six years ago. So what's the difference in the, in the students between now and then? So it's interesting. Our, our motto, like when you go to our website, our motto front and center, we're the Institute of Politics and Public Service. Our motto is public service is a good thing. Politics can be too. Oh. And Right. And, and, and that's sort of what motivates us. It's this notion that politics should not and it does not in, inherently need to be a dirty word, that it is how democracies settle their differences, um, that the competition for, uh, of ideas should make for better government, um, that it's OK to be partisan if, if being partisan means you, have, you care so much about a worldview that you wake up every day and fight like hell for that worldview. But that we're missing the mark in a lot of ways. And that's sort of what, right, that that um, there are winners and losers in politics. Um, can we be better winners and losers? Can we make sure that the fight is just, you know, a means to the end instead of the end itself? And we're missing the mark some. Um, one of the things that has always impressed me about our students is they get that. They get that um, politics is an important process and it's important form of public service, at least, you know, if you do it the way Sarah did it back when she was still in it. Um, and they really, truly wanted to understand differences, right? They did not immediately ascribe motivations to their political opponents. They wanted to actually understand it in part to see if maybe there was a middle ground on an issue or at the, if there wasn't, at least just to better inform their own advocacy, I will be a better advocate if I understand what motivates Republican voters. Instead of just saying, if you're voting for Donald Trump, you are immediately a racist misogynist. If I understand what it is that actually motivates you, maybe I can better advocate my side to you. And students get that. And they get that inherently. It has become more challenging, though, over the past couple of years. We are seeing some of the same fault lines that's, that is defining politics overall. I'm starting to see some of that on campus. Um, they are self-selecting a little bit more. Republican students going primarily to Republican speakers and Democratic students going primarily to Democratic speakers, but not entirely. We're still seeing the crossover that is important. Um, and that's what gives me hope, um, is that they are more willing than my generation was um, to, to sit down and have difficult conversations with people that disagree with them. Um, and I think that's the starting point, right? Let's send some more food trucks, Sarah, to, to all these college campuses <laughs> um, and, and get these people to meet over some fries and just talk. I'm so for but that. No, fr no, no carbs. No carbs, Mo. You <laughs> we can't keep the carbs out. They just do pork rinds. <laughs> this this direwalt uh, approach to politics all about that's the pork right rinse. it's all about the pork all right mo my last topic for you i am in an incredibly good mood today because if we had talked yesterday about our favorite national holiday it wouldn't have been a close call for me i would have said thanksgiving and that is going to be my question to you of what is your favorite national holiday but today, Mo, I have a new favorite national holiday. I am so thrilled that Texas gets to export my favorite Texas holiday to the nation today. It is official. Juneteenth is now a federal holiday. This is the anniversary of when enslaved people in Texas found out about the Emancipation Proclamation that had been signed in 1862. Uh, freeing any enslaved people in rebellious states. They found out about it on June 19th, 1865 in Galveston, Texas. Um, it is a wonderful celebration in Texas. And uh, I'm just, I'm so happy today. I'm thrilled. I think it is 
in part an answer to what we're all talking about, which is it is recognizing the darkest moment of our history while celebrating and finding joy in its ending. We're not ignoring it. We're not tearing down statues. We're not pretending it didn't exist. But we're also recognizing progress and and a future from that history. And I love it. And I'm so happy. So my question to you is, Mo, what's your favorite federal holiday? Um, well, I mean, I'm so inspired by what you just said. And I agree. Holy, I, I am so excited about Juneteenth. I just hope Juneteenth doesn't turn into just a, you know, that people re- remember what this is about, right? Too many of these federal holidays that are supposed to be in memorial. Uh, in memorial Ma- mattress of, of sales. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? And, Ce- and, celebrate and, our war dead by buying a new Honda. Yes. I mean, I would never speak ill of barbecue. You know that, Chris. But like, I know. Memorial Day should be about more than just the barbecue, right? I really hope that's that's the case with Juneteenth and that we that it is reflect as reflective as it is celebratory uh, moving forward. Um, my favorite holiday um, that are not holidays. Uh, my two favorite days of the year are not holidays, and I desperately want them to be, um, or at least federal holidays. One is is Election Day. I want Election Day to be Amen. a federal holiday. I think Agreed. that is important. Agreed. Um, uh, one of the things I'm very proud of at Georgetown is college Democrats and college Republicans have come together w- through our institute to do uh, celebrations of democracy on Election Day. They stop doing separate election night watch parties. They come together for one big one with our institute. Uh, election Day should be a celebration of civic engagement, and, and I would like to see that at a federal holiday. Uh, my absolute favorite holiday is Halloween, and I think we should all take the week off. <laughs> Frankly, the, day. the Halloween people. Did not you people see are the that worst. Wow. Back off. Sorry. The Halloween people are the worst. Oh, and it's you, not even about the candy for me. So I, I want to. Oh, I, I like scaring little people. That's what I like are, doing. So. Are you like spider webs in the front of the house, and you dress up in ghoulish attire and everything? We. My kids are still young enough that, that we can get away with family themed costumes. Ooh. Um, uh, but I only have like a year or two of that left. And as soon as, as soon as the kids move on past us, uh, uh, I'm going full on, uh, demon house just to scare all the neighborhood kids. No, I feel like you need to consider Judaism. You get a whole second Halloween. (laughs) That's right. That is right. My my wife is Jewish, so I get it anyway. There you go. Exactly. How did I not know that? Wow. You'll have, you, you'll be the only haunted house on the street with the Kol Nidre. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, Chris. I, 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 every day should be. What's your favorite holiday? Uh, it's thanks. I mean, my favorite secular governmental holiday. Uh, I'm an Easter person first and is I love Easter, uh, for real holidays, but for federal holidays, I'm still a Thanksgiving guy. I'm cause I'm a Lincoln dude. So I'm, I'm into it. All right. Well, now we have two Lincoln holidays. We have Thanksgiving and Juneteenth and We have a wonderful conversation with Mo Lathy that you can just listen to over and over again as the midterms progress. (laughs) Mo. Whatever you need to get put to sleep. (laughs) You can't fall asleep. Listen to me. Mo, thank you so much. This is a treat. You know, you're one of my favorite people and not just favorite Democrats. So it's, it's great. I, I, I always love talking with the two of you. So thanks for having me. 